tennis fans. You are listening to Match Point Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we're now through a week and change of the first Grand Slam of the tennis calendar, the Australian Open. Uh, Mike, my first question, how's your sleep schedule holding up through the first eight, nine days, really, of the tournament? Uh, Well, I mean, it depends how you look at it, I guess. I mean, I feel like I've been pacing myself in terms of how much tennis I'm watching and at what times, because it is a two-week grind you can't you know waste all those late nights on the first week but i've already gotten sick over the last few days so anyone oh, listening shoot. to my voice might be able to pick up on that although i'm on the upward swing here but i don't know maybe that just goes to show that uh, i'm not quite as conditioned uh, as a, a tennis fan as i i need to be at this time of the season i should have started practicing maybe a little sooner in adelaide or auckland or um at, at any rate maybe it's just bad luck but nonetheless enjoying the storylines really loving the tennis i have seen and uh, my goodness, there's no shortage of upsets, surprises, uh, and and drama so far. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of a lot of surprises through the first week and a half, without a doubt. And we have a great guest uh, to talk about a few of those storylines. I had a chance to interview six-time uh, Grand Slam doubles champion, former world number one Renee Stubbs, who actually uh, joined us last year. Uh, the conversation I had with her last year was, of course, largely centered around what was happening with Novak Djokovic and uh, exemptions, vaccinations, getting into the country, not being able to play. So there was so much drama and international incident, so to speak, a year ago. I- I'm glad this conversation with Renee was was just about the tennis. Yeah, and what a perfect guest to have, whether it be last year, that insider information being Australian herself. And it just, I don't know if it's uh, the voice, the accent, the uh, legitimacy mm-hmm. of her being an Aussie uh, and, and a former champion as, as well. It just, I think, adds to the overall impact that she has as a guest. And um, and and absolutely, I mean, I think we're off to a great start, by the way, this year between Blair Henley, um, John Wertheim, and now Renee Stubbs. These are three of the top tennis analyst uh, voices in the sport worldwide. Yeah, not bad at all. Uh, So without further ado, here's my conversation with Renee Stubbs. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis and so happy to be joined by our guest for this week. She's a four-time Grand Slam champion in women's doubles, also two-time Slam champion in mixed doubles and a former uh, world number one ranked player and now a commentator in the sport, Renee Stubbs. Thanks uh, so much for taking the time uh, to join us again. You're welcome. Great to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you. Um, you know, we're we're getting deeper into this tournament in Melbourne, Australia. I, I know you're on site. Just um, the vibe around the tournament. I know we've had record number of, of uh, attendees. What's I guess the atmosphere been like? Uh, just just surrounding the live tennis uh, when when you've been there, at least. Yeah, it's been amazing. I think the, the thing that about this year is uh, it, we're sort of. I mean, obviously the pandemic is still around, COVID is still around, et cetera, but it's Australians are finally feeling like they're back, getting back to normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sense that the US Open as well, where the crowds were just outrageously excited and the atmosphere was absolutely incredible at the US Open. And I'm finding the same thing here at the Australian Open, where 
just the crowds are back. You know, we're, we're having record numbers every day. Um, we've had some incredible matches, particularly on the men's side. We've had a few on the women's, but we've had some incredible men's five-setters this year. So I just think, you know, Australia embraces sports like no other country in the world. And um, I think due to no more COVID restrictions, everyone's very excited to watch some tennis. Yeah, certainly from just even watching uh, on my television, uh, the scenes have felt uh, electric, uh, particularly the night sessions. Uh, Just talking about some of the men's matches that we did see in the first week. I I mean, the spectacle and show that Andy Murray is still able to put on at the age of 35, um, two hip surgeries later. I mean, how how astounding is it to to just watch? And are, are (laughs) are you in awe that he can still do this? How is he still doing? this yeah it's pretty amazing considering we um put him to uh dead and buried uh, about what was it three or four years ago here at the australian open when Mm -hmm. we sent him off with the you know beautiful montage of videos and telling everyone you know all the players in the world telling telling uh, the stories of andy murray and all the things that he's done and then all of a sudden he's back here just beating the likes of matteo berrettini um you know tanasi kokonakis down two sets to love just incredible um, two matches to finish at 4 a plus a.m. in the morning, come back and actually hit some tennis balls the next day and, and almost, almost get into the fifth set against uh, Batista Agut, one of the toughest outs in tennis. So it's pretty remarkable. Unfortunately, um, you know, his back went out of him a little bit against uh, Batista Agut. So that was that was the thing that ended up causing him to really not be able to get through that, that match as a winner again. But what he does is just unbelievable. Um, I saw him the next day, could barely walk. So it's amazing what he can still do physically. And he just loves the sport so much. It's just, he's just such a, you know, an idol and a, and a real role model for so many. Yeah, his passion for the game is is incredible. Um, you know, we've had some breakout stories, of course, on the men's side, particularly from a few Americans, three Americans through to the quarterfinals for the first time since 2000. Uh, we'll get to Novak Djokovic in, in a moment, but if you're looking, I guess, at the other seven names in the field, are, are there any, you know, ones really particularly standing out to you in, in terms of their tennis? Well, I think you have to look at Stefanos Tsitsipas, what he went through the other night, just getting through um, that match. I, I think that he's possibly poised to maybe make the run that we, we hope he will. He, we know he can play well against Novak. We know that he can push um, every top player. It's a very memorable match that he played against Roger Federer here a number of years ago. Look, the guy can play, and he's you know had Novak two sets to love down at the French uh, – uh, sorry, um, yeah, was it the French Open where he had yeah, two was. sets to love on <laughs> yep. Novak? Yeah, so I mean, you know, he's capable of of doing this, um, and maybe he's getting closer and closer. I still think his dad is like a bit of an issue, just because they just they just bang heads against each other at some point. There's sort of I feel like there's always a breaking point. Mm-hmm. But look, I think he's probably the one that could maybe cause the upset. But look, you know, the Americans are doing unbelievable things. I mean, Seb Corder, we haven't even really talked about. We talk about the Ben Shelton story, how great that is, and. And, and, you know, him taking out uh, J.J. Wolf an amazing five-set match yesterday, both college players coming out of the Pro Tour doing amazing things. And it's a, it's great for the young Americans to see that you can go to college and get that experience and get the experience of getting better as a tennis player before you go out into the main tour. And I would suggest a lot of guys do that because physically it is very demanding and I think you get that match practice and and that tenacity playing college tennis and there's nothing quite like it and there are scholarships galore for americans to get on teams so um and then tommy paul you know sort of like 
has made his way through and gotten himself in good shape and is starting to really play some a, a really, really good tennis. So it's amazing that Seb Korda as well gets a win over Medvedev quite comfortably and then goes out and has a, just an amazing match against uh, Herkutch in five sets and gets through that. And we know the story of the Cordas and what they've been able to achieve here in Melbourne in particular, where every single family member except mum, who was also a great tennis player, has won an Australian Open in some capacity, whether it be golf and tennis. So he's certainly got the genes to be able to do it. He has the game. The serve is very dominant on this court. And um, I'm loving seeing Seb Corder do really well as well. And all of these guys, all the American guys, are just really good kids. I uh, yeah, I love uh, Seb's little routine of of giving a, a tap to his dad's name when he when he walks through onto Rod Laver Arena yeah. um for that 1999 title. Uh just to get to Novak Djokovic, I mean, I had some trepidations possibly through his first three matches of the condition he was in and then I watched uh, what he did uh, to to fellow to Aussie Alex Dimenauer who who frankly looked like he didn't quite belong on the court with him. I I mean it was an absolute beatdown. It was in some sense, perfection on the tennis court. It sort of reminded me of his performance against Rafael Nadal in that 2019 final in Melbourne. Do, do you get the sense that Novak is sort of at the height of his powers again? Yeah, I mean, listen, I knew that... I can't imagine the leg injury would have been so... Look, I've had little micro tears in my quad and um, and... It, you just can't play if you're in that much pain. I just think it was more a precautionary thing. I'm sure it was bothering him and tight. And, but I, I just knew that there's no way, nothing stopping him from, you know, technically defending his titles. Um, we know he didn't have a chance to do that last year mm-hmm. with all the thing that happened with the vaccination, et cetera. But, but look, I, I know he came down here with a massive um, amount of vengeance in him to want to win this Australian Open and get 10 titles. He's uh, uh, the only second person to ever do that in the history of the game. Obviously, Rafael Nadal winning 14 uh, French Opens and Martina Navratilova winning nine Wimbledon. So he's going to put himself into a, the upper echelons of greatness if he wins the Australian Open here, which in my mind he's going to. I uh, just don't see anyone really pushing him and beating him here. And last night it was like a, it was like a middleweight against a featherweight uh, last night, I won't call say heavyweight, middleweight because Novak's not really a heavyweight. He's he's that <laughs> yes. middleweight kind of guy, you know. That's right. Uh, and and Dimonor looked like a featherweight, and um, you know Alex Dimonor is a great player, and we we know that Novak had a, maybe a little vengeance in him yesterday because of course uh, Alex Dimonor was not exactly too welcoming to Novak last year with the vaccine mm-hmm. situation, so yeah. I'm sure he took it out on him very well last night. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I I don't know. So many athletes, you know, they have their superstitions, uh, and it's it's easy to get wrapped up in the thought that there might be a, a curse behind this new Netflix series Breakpoint, <laughs> and ten of the feature players all dismissed from the Australian Open, a few due to injuries, and then seen early exits from players like Anjabur, Casper Ruud. When you played, were you the superstitious type? Did you have certain routines that you stuck to, or uh, maybe maybe worked and you got a win doing a, a certain thing? the way you tied your shoes and said, Oh, I got to stick to that for the rest of my career or whatever it may be. Oh yeah, absolutely. I wore a different outfit every single day when I won the Australian open here for the first time. I didn't realize until the quarterfinals that I'd worn a different outfit every day. And you can't do that now because you have to, or everyone wears the same gear, but back Mm. then you could. Um, So yeah, I've got plenty of little superstitions like that. Same shower, same breakfast or whatever it is, same toilet that you use someone's using it even though there's 10 available you'll still use the same one you'll wait patiently for that one shower or toilet so yeah there's a lot of superstitions but yeah this netflix um it's pretty funny 
because they all had very good years last year, though. They did. If you look at the, you know, the Anjibu story and even Ayla Tamlanovic and uh, Maria Sakari, they all had very, very good stories. Um, but Berrettini had it up and down, but that was really due to injury. Um, so look, the guys, you know, Felix Ogier, Ali Sim had a great breakout year last year. So uh, look, I mean, I think it's maybe a coincidence, but I guess by the French Open we'll know. For sure, if it's a total curse. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Uh, just shifting course over to, to the women's side, it, it, of course, feels like such a fantastic opportunity uh, for someone to go and get their first slam. And I look at a few of these names and the careers that they've had to this point, and you feel they're deserving of a slam, like an Arena Sabalenka or a Karolina Pliskova, for example. Jessica Pagula, we know, has played some amazing tennis, particularly on hard courts. Uh, who's... Uh, Who's looked, I guess, the best to you through the first eight days? Oh, it's hard to say. I mean, I saw Ostapenko play um, uh, just an exceptional match against Coco Goff, just just yeah. took the racket out of her hands. Rabakina took the racket out of Iga's hands. Iga did not play her best, didn't serve well enough against Rabakina. And it really is a serving court. If you serve well, it's a fast, fast court. Conditions are warm. So, um, yeah, I mean, Karolina Pliskova, I mean, she's had a pretty good draw. Some of the players have had reasonable draws. I look for the players that have had really tough draws, like a Rabakina and even Ostapenko. And Jessica Pagul has been pushed. She looks unbelievably comfortable in this situation, even though she's never made a semifinal of a Grand Slam or a final. Um, and that's a big step. So I, I look to the players that have won Grand Slams before. I think Rabakina is the type of player, once she gets a roll on, she's very, very difficult to beat. Um, Ostapenko thinks she can win any match against any player at any time. Um, uh, that's just her personality. But they go up against each other. So I think the winner of that match is going to be really tough to beat in the tournament. And, of course, Sabalenka is playing great. One Adelaide coming in here, serving woes, or seems to be behind her, and that's really been her biggest downfall over the last 12 months. So I think Sabalenka is the favourite in that half of the draw. And, of course, we'll see, as I said, who comes out between the Pagula slash... Uh, you know, Rabakina, Ostapenko group of mm -hmm. big hitters, big flat hitters. So honestly, just like women's tennis has been over the last five, six, seven years, um, it's like a bit of a box of chocolates. Any any of them, I think the only one I'll be surprised at is Magda Lynette. If she wins the tournament, then I'll then I, I nothing makes sense. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, a great, I don't want to say she's not a great player. She's a great oh, player, but I just, you know, these other players, I feel like, are, are probably just a little bit of a step above her. But a terrific win against Garcia, who was definitely one of the favorites. So, as I said, it won't surprise me if any of them win. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll finish with the storyline of uh, the defending champion and his return, Rafael Nadal, getting through his first round match against Jack Draper before uh, losing to Mackie McDonald and, of course, getting sort of hobbled towards the end of the match, suffering that hip injury, which will sideline him for six to eight weeks. I, I think you said on your social media you believed maybe this is the last time we see him in Melbourne. Uh, do you still feel that way? And, and I, I suppose maybe it's an obvious question, but what's the main reason for that? Oh, well, I mean, I think the obvious reason for me is, well, first of all, I just thought he just took a little bit extra time walking off the court. And I made that same comment when I saw Serena walk off the court the last time she was here. I thought, yeah, mm, that just looked a little bit more of a goodbye to the whole place kind of thing. And I just felt like that Rafa was sort of a little bit. He's very gracious when he loses. He always waves to everybody. But this felt a little different to me. This felt like he knew that it might be the last time he's out there. 
Um, I know that he probably can't ever replicate the feeling that he had last year when he won it. I mean, his face tells the story. But, look, I, I just think his injuries are getting more and more um, prevalent. He's had injury woes throughout his entire career. But I have to say it's just one thing after the other with the stomach muscle and the foot and then, you know, the knees and now this – issue with his iliopsis joint which is in the hip which is not a fun thing to go through i think he's going to try and get himself as healthy and as and as positive in a frame of mind as confident as possible going into the french open and then my guess is that i wouldn't be surprised if he stops after that but we'll see i listen i want to be i want to be the first person that's wrong i would love to see that guy <laughs> play for 10 more years sure. but i just feel like now with a family, with you know ha- having a child at home, it's a lot to work. You know, it's not a lot to travel with um, a family, even with all the money that he has. And obviously, he would be flying privately, you know, when he can. It's it's still it's still a lot. And I just think his his body is telling him it's probably time. Yeah, I I was struck by uh, him saying he was destroyed mentally uh, in in yeah. that press conference, which I've never heard him well, say the- before. Yeah, and I think that's an indication of it, at some point it just becomes too much. Right. Uh, and even even just that rehabilitation process to be able to get back on the tennis court, I guess, gets a little harder every time. It always gets easier, yeah. though, chatting with you, Renee. Uh, always a pleasure uh, to speak with you You're on welcome. Matchpoint Canada. Really appreciate your time and enjoy the rest of the tournament. Thanks, Ben. I will. There you have it. My interview with... Uh, former doubles champion Renee Stubbs. I should just mention that she does have a new show as well. She hosts the Power Hour, which is actually on Amazon Amazon Prime Video. So if you have Prime Video, uh, check that out. Uh, I know I know we covered a lot, but I, I mean, there is still so much that, Mike, I would love your reaction to. And if we started just on the women's side, and I don't know how high you were on Iga Sviantek maybe realistically winning this tournament, but I guess what was your shock level to her going out round of 16 to Rybakina? Uh, it was tangible. Uh, I mean, it was definitely a shock when when I, I saw it happen. And and this early in the tournament as well, not even making it to, uh, to the final eight. So I think of the field that was there uh, and, you know, you're, you're missing people. Well, Ash Barty, that's a given. She's retired now. Naomi Osaka, who's performed so well in Melbourne, uh, also away from the sport temporarily anyways, um, as she's expecting her first child. We know Serena's retired, but when you look at the players in there, she was by far the one that had the most clout given her uh, results in 2022, picking up two slams, uh, number one player in the world and still by large margin. So despite the fact that she had a hiccup coming in, um, it it was quite surprising uh, for me. How about you? Yeah, I, I was surprised. And you know what? The the way this surface is playing, and Renee touched on this a little bit, it does feel like it's favoring, you know, hard, flat servers who can really hit through the court. And you look at the way Rybakina played on the road to her Wimbledon title. That's kind of her brand of tennis, sort of straight line, flat power tennis, and really just had Iga off balance uh, through two sets. And we know the best two of three format, if you don't have your A game and the opponent does, especially on the women's side, uh, these upsets can happen. I would say Iga came in with a little bit more vulnerability than other times, given that she did lose that match to Pagula at the United Cup arriving to the tournament. So she wasn't coming in like I'm dusting the field, which she did, you know, for the bulk of 2022. So there was a little bit of vulnerability there. And I hope one thing it does is we attach more 
more clout to Rybakina's name, who's probably, for me, you know, one of the most overlooked slam champions of the past probably 10, 15 years. Yeah, good point. And we've got, uh, what, we've got three slam champions left in the women's field as we Mm -hmm. record this. This is all going to change even by the time this episode comes out early Tuesday, Eastern time for us. But uh, Rybakina, who's up against another former slam champion, Elena Ostapenko, my one of my favorite fashion icons on the women's tour and, and someone who was just so much fun to watch for both her powerful game and, uh, you know, the facial expressions and reactions as well. And then you've got Victoria Azarenka, who's the only um, remaining Aussie open champion on the women's side left the 24 seed. So three of the four in the top half of the draw are uh, our slam champions. We've got some that we've kind of expected slams from perhaps at this stage, like arena Sabalenka and my dark horse pick, who's still alive, Karina, uh, Karolina Pliskova. Uh, the ace queen is still in there, too. So it's just, a, a, it's just a great mix of players that are left. It really excites me to think that one of these eight women is going to hoist the trophy uh, in just under a week's time now as well. Uh, who are you feeling of these eight remaining women? Is it going to be a first-time slam champ, or do you see one of those three I mentioned hoisting another big trophy? I'm going to say it's going to be a first-time slam champion. I'm going to give myself a pat on the back because from our last episode, the only thing I got right was Azarenka as a dark horse. So for her to get to this stage of the tournament quarterfinals is obviously a fantastic result for her. Uh, But watching the way Sabalenka was able to hit through Belinda Bencic just the other night, I watched that match from start to finish. And we know Bencic was in incredible form going into that. She led off her season with a title. She had led uh, Switzerland to a Billie Jean King Cup victory the previous season. This is the best I've seen her play in a long time. And Sabalenka just completely overpowered her. I think the past three matches, she's tallied 32 winners in each of them. And this one was just so impressively clean from the back of the court. And I feel like Sabalenka has been knocking on the door. She hasn't been to a slam final yet, but you've seen those opportunities losing U.S. Open semis actually to Leila Fernandez a couple years ago in New York and just at the tail end of last year losing to Garcia in the WTA finals uh, finishing runner up there so I feel like it's really coming together in the sense that she looks ready to win a big title yeah I can't argue against that and she's got a nice draw in the bottom half too I would say if you had to pick between the top and the bottom that's probably uh, the one with a little Mm -hmm. less resistance not to take anything away from uh, the other three women who were down there with her Uh, Donna Vakic nice story to see her in the quarterfinals She's really turned it up since late last year, and, and that's nice to see her playing uh, strong tennis again. And, of course, you know, we can't not mention Jessica Pagula, the third seed who's left in the draw, and uh, definitely deserving of that number next to her name, a player that has just really risen over the past couple of seasons, waiting for that major result to translate. And, and maybe this will this will be it. But uh, Azarenka as well, just to touch on her one last time, Mm-hmm. Boy, she was so good. And it, 10 years ago that she was just on fire. She had a 2012 and 2013 where she was just incredible, making six out of eight uh, semifinals or better at the majors over those two uh, calendar seasons. Uh, of course, winning twice in Melbourne, making the finals twice of the U.S. Open and more recently also making a U.S. Open final in 2020. Yeah. So you can never count her out. She's 33 years old now. She's in fantastic shape. I think the best shape of her career and and realizing being the the older player they're realizing how many chances you have left so just i think probably appreciating this moment and maybe giving a little extra motivation realizing um you know all she's she she has yeah and look she she played such a, a beautiful match in her career and knowing there's only so many chances left like this 
Yeah, and you know she played such a beautiful match the other night against a Zhu Lin. That was one that I think finished two twenty a.m. Melbourne time, one of those very very late starts. But it was such a thrilling encounter. Zhu Lin, very unpredictable, tricky player who who got her way all the, all the way to the round of sixteen. A bit of a Cinderella story, and and Vika sort of solved the problem there, uh, which shows you her her experience uh, still um, to get this deep in a slam is is so so impressive. Before we switch over to the men's side you know i i asked the question to to renee stubbs in terms of how superstitious she was as an athlete i know mike you and i have both watched the breakpoint series and the netflix curse i mean in full effect in this tournament literally all 10 featured players out of the tournament before the second week which is a bit of a shock I am uh, I am only three episodes in, so I'm, I'm okay. making progress. But it's taking right, some won't, time. But I'm making some. I, won't spoil. I don't want to rush it. I want to enjoy it. Of course. But um, I wonder. I mean, I don't believe in a curse, but I do wonder if you know having the premiere in Melbourne, some some extra media attention on these athletes that have been in the spotlight, uh, maybe receiving some extra calls from family and friends, some extra text messages after seeing the episodes with them in it, mm-hmm. is the extra attention perhaps a bit of a problem? making them feel any um, added pressure to perform this early in the season. Not that they're, you know, not already used to being celebrities and, and, and having a lot of attention on them, but I just wonder if this kind of spotlight, you know, the movie star kind of spotlight, if you will, adds just a little something extra that detracts from their focus as they're trying to prepare and shut out all the noise for the first major of the year. It's certainly possible. I wonder about, uh, I think Taylor Fritz is an athlete for me going into the slam, especially uh, at the start, looking at his draw and opportunities in the bottom half there, that expectations were high. The way he played, you know, at the ATP finals, he made the semifinal and and pushed Djokovic. He's really been on the up and up that I I think a, a strong expectation was maybe there for him that he's a player who could make semifinals or deeper. He's ready to push for a major and to see him lose to, to popper and have a, have kind of a shock loss like that in the second round. I wonder if he put too much pressure on himself. Very interesting. Maria Sacri leaving this tournament early. She talks about in breakpoint, dealing with those pressures and maybe wanting it too badly. Um, And if you do want it too badly, you can stress yourself out over the situation. So I I think that's something that Maria has to work on as well. Just a couple of examples there uh, who are out of the tournament. What's your take on the show overall? Uh, You've watched all five episodes, have you? I have. Yeah. Yeah. What's the good, what's the, the, the bad or what needs, you know, what could you critique, I guess, after watching them? The good, I, I mean, I I do love when these athletes in particular sort of talk about the mental challenges of the sport, the the week-to-week grind. Uh, Paula Badosa describing it, winning is a drug, uh, that you get addicted to that feeling. Um, Just so hungry for the competition. Uh, Seeing the episode Casper Roux getting set for that French Open final against Rafael Nadal. Some of that footage is incredible. I, I love that. I know some tennis fans like you and myself who, of course, follow the sport more closely. I've seen other people on Twitter complaining, you know, that they're explaining how the score works. They're explaining how big a tournament Indian Wells is. We already know this, but I don't really take issue with that. I think the objective with this series, similar to to the F1 series, is attracting maybe the more casual fan, maybe the person who's had an interest in tennis and doesn't know these athletes. And that's okay. I, I thought the first couple episodes were maybe a little bit more slow, but the last few in particular kind of wrote me in, to be honest. 
well, so maybe that's what I need to do is just keep watching a little bit because I, I do find the first few have been a little bit on the slower side. And it's not the fact that they're simplifying the sport. If I, I don't think they've simplified it too much. I mean, I understand that you've got to explain things like the score line or the difference between a best of three and best of five for the men at slams and non-slams. I mean, I think they handled that as, as quickly as they could to get non-tennis fans or casual tennis fans up to speed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do like that they're showing some of the personalities behind the scene, but I, I do think it needs a little bit more conflict. I don't think they're showing enough. And and tennis in general, I mean, aside from Nick Kyrgios, who's the bad boy of tennis, how much conflict are we seeing week in, week out between competitors? You know, many of them are just so gosh darn nice to one another. <laughs> and, true. and one thing that I really liked about the F1 show Drive to Survive, which took me a couple of years ago, was there is that conflict and drama between the 20 drivers in that circuit and even between teammates who are racing for the same, um, you know, car, car uh, brand, car company. So I think the tennis one could use a little bit more of that, a little bit more drama, but yeah. I don't know if that's a critique of Breakpoint. That might just be one of my critiques about the tour in general. No, that's that's fair, and I I mean, there's there's still uh, more episodes to come. I'd be curious what the show looks like as we as we navigate. Uh, further into the season i will say the last couple of episodes which you're going to get to were probably my favorite i did really like the felix episode um shifting over to the men's side and before we get to felix i i have to say there were questions surrounding the hamstring and renee and i talked about it for me i i will be pretty surprised if novak Djokovic doesn't win his 10th title here yeah, well, let's, let's see here. I mean, if you go back to 2006, only once has it been won by somebody outside the big three, and that was Stan Wawrinka, of course. Uh, so there is no big three left here except Djokovic, so that mm-hmm. certainly bodes in his favor. And I love what Renee said to you when, when she mentioned, you know, there's a massive amount of vengeance in him. And, and of course there is, and it's understandable. And I, mean, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that's a negative. No. I'd be pissed, too, if I was Novak Djokovic being invited to Australia last year by the turn of the or what the outcome is going to be so I get it he's ticked he's going to use that to further motivate himself as if Djokovic needs any more motivation uh but to me and to everyone really probably uh overwhelming favorite for sure yeah overwhelming favorite for sure I think the one guy, maybe I'm wrong, maybe Andre Rublev will put in the the performance of a lifetime. The one guy who could conceivably stop him, but doing so in a best of five just seems so difficult. Stefano Tsitsipas has been playing amazing uh, throughout this throughout this fortnight. And a few of the Americans, I, I mean, congrats to them to, for having this incredible breakthrough. I, I don't think they're ready to win slams yet, but to see the emergence of someone like Ben Shelton, this is a college player last year who was ranked 400th, and he'll be inside the top 40 by the end of this tournament whether he beats tommy paul or not like that's an unbelievable sort of push for a player who had never stepped foot outside the united states for a tournament what a story well this tournament is just doing wonders isn't it for american college tennis in terms of highlighting the program and the player development and and the fact that you can go that route and still have uh, a successful professional career and we see many canadians that go down and play ncaa uh you know college tennis and and some of them, of course, still have aspirations to turn pro. And so this must be just so unbelievably motivating for all those college tennis players out there that are watching. So what a great story added to the fact that the guy had never left the United States before this tournament. I mean, it's just maddening, you yeah. know, to hear that this is his first trip outside of home soil. And look at this. He's into the quarterfinals. So um, 
great for American tennis. Uh, look, when I was growing up, uh, American tennis was booming. It was uh, just a, an absolute golden era. You had Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe still hanging on, but then you had Pete Sampras, Courier, Chang, uh, Agassi, um, all, all these fantastic players. And that's just on the men's side that I'm mentioning, not to mention the the Capriotis and Davenports and the list goes on and on. So mm-hmm. Mary Jo Fernandez, right? So um, it, it's it's nice to see uh, for the Americans and for friends of ours in the U.S., tennis fans there that we know uh, that follow the sport, to have this sort of moment, you know, that's going to, you know, compel them and excite them that much more, just as we feel the same way when we've got a Canadian or two that's gone deep in a, in a slam as well. Yeah, no, no doubt. Unfortunately, we don't have any more Canadians on the single side, and we should sort of evaluate the performances of how they did. If we start on the men's side and just talking about Felix Ojealiasim for a moment, he did go the furthest of any Canadian in singles reaching the round of 16. I have to say Yuri Lehechka was not on my card to make the quarterfinals at this tournament. Felix, I, I want to say, apart from his third round win against uh, Sarindolo, he never looks maybe fully comfortable or in form. Even that first round win against Vashik Pospisil in four sets, he kind of struggled with his feel from the back of the court on the ball. Uh, second round, you know, he had to dig deep out of a two-set hole against Alex Molkan. So nothing was really going that smoothly through this tournament before he got to the round of 16, which was maybe a bad omen. Yeah, you kind of hoped that he was just going to shake it off and it was just some early glitches and then he was going to get on track. Not to be Lehechka, give him all the credit, taking out Borna uh, Choric, uh, Cam Nori, who'd been playing fantastic tennis coming in, both going undefeated at United Cup, and also, um, oh God, forgive me, uh, making the finals of um, of Auckland, was it, I believe, coming in? Um, yeah. So he, he had been playing absolutely terrific uh, tennis. So, you know, for Felix to fall to a player that's clearly in form, 21 years old, up and coming, uh, never made it past the first round of a slam. He went out in the first round of all four slams last year. So this is uh, a career, um, you know, coming out moment for him. Uh, but disappointment for Felix, absolutely. A lot of tennis season left. I mean, as they say in Breakpoint, how many of those players said, you know, tennis is a sport where you do a lot of losing and you got to get used to it and it really weighs on you. And so it's it's very rare that you end up winning. There's only one of 128 on both the men's and women's side. They're going to hoist that trophy. Um, but for Felix, uh, certainly not the result he was hoping for. And for Denis Shapovalov, who lost in, in five cents, which I thought was a very respectable result against uh, Huber Hercatch. Yeah. Um, you know, he said he felt nervous in in big moments and that that's what's holding him back. I'm not sure if that's how I really see it with Dennis. To me, this kind of result, it's almost like a coin flip when you get to a fifth set in a slam in a in a match like that against, you know, a top 10 kind of a guy. So to me, what it is with Dennis, it's it's it's, it's the moments that aren't the big moments where I'm more concerned, uh, like that losing streak he had last year where he disappears for weeks on end. And, and you wonder, where, where's the game all of a sudden? So that's more concerning to me. I don't have concerns with the way he went out in Melbourne here. Yeah, that that's a fair evaluation. I'm thinking just back to U.S. Open was a very similar result, um, losing in five sets, coming down to the wire with Andre Rublev there. Uh, so we know Dennis's talent and his skill set. I, I mean, I would put him right up there, basically, with your Hercatches and Rublevs and and Fritzes in terms of you know the high level tennis you can play. He's not quite in that sort of top six, top five yet, but he's he feels like sort of that second echelon of player. His game's there. His game's there. It's the consistency isn't. He's got all the tools. He's got all the talent. The consistency isn't there to be in uh, you know amongst those players yet. 
Yeah, exactly. And I will say basically since the US Open, it has been a positive trend up in terms of how he's played in getting himself deeper in tournaments pretty consistently because he had those two finals, the one in Vienna losing to Daniil Medvedev. He played pretty well in Adelaide getting a couple wins before losing to Novak. It, it looks like maybe he has righted the ship in that sense that we haven't seen the ugly early round losses to someone outside the top 50 or whatever it may be for a while. So maybe that is a good sign for 2023. I think he is playing good tennis. Um, he said he was a little bit heartbroken by this loss, which I, I can understand. I mean, you go five sets in the third round. He felt like it's, it's a match he could have won. You know, he's got a big heart and he cares. And I think, you know, sometimes I may be a little bit critical of some of the antics and behavior on court, but I think that all stems from the fact that this guy gives a damn and uh, and, mm -hmm. and wants to have that success. And so, you know, maybe to look at it from from that point of view and to hear him say those words afterwards, that uh, that bodes well for the long term. And look, bias aside, being a Canadian tennis uh, journalist and reporter, uh, he's one of the players I'm most excited to see what 2023 holds in store for him. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm with you there. Just on the women's side, our two Canadians in singles. I'll start with Layla Annie Fernandez, who for me, she lost in the second round, but I really thought she was playing good tennis. And, you know, she gets the good win over Alizé Cornet, veteran player who was in the quarters of this tournament last year. Then you have to run into the world number four. I mean, talk about a brutal draw. And for those who stayed up and watched her match with Caroline Garcia, these two players were neck and neck. It was basically dead even. Seven, six, seven, five for Garcia. Layla had a set point in the second set. She was also ahead four to one in the first set tiebreak. So for anyone who watched this match, honestly, I thought Layla was playing very well. And if she's playing that caliber of tennis, I think she's going to beat most of most of the competition on tour. There, there's the motivation that she needs to get that ranking back to a top 32 position where you can be seated at a slam and avoid a player like that in the second round. I mean, that's yeah. just a brutal, brutal draw. And she's not the only player that had a tough, tough draw. She's not the only very, very talented player outside the top 32. But I think this should hopefully continue to fuel that that fire for her. And uh, I mean, let's, you know, knock on wood, she stays healthy this year. She's going to have a great opportunity between the French Open and the hardcourt swing to amass some more points as well. Uh, and look, there's some uh, tournaments in Mexico coming up soon. We know she usually plays well there as well. The fans love her. So hopefully that gives her a little extra boost to get on a, a win streak and get that ranking up higher. Thoughts just on Bianca Andrescu. She got a great win as well to start her tournament. She had to play the seeded player first, Marie Boscova, outclass Boscova in straight sets. And look, I gave this theory on uh, Karina Mustafa's court time show, but reporters were asking her about a potential third round matchup with Iga Sviantek. You know, she beats a player like Bozkova. She gets a qualifier in the second round and Christina Buxa, she's up a set and a break. Is it insane to suggest maybe did she get caught looking ahead? No, no. I saw you say that and I saw your tweet about it and I completely agreed. And I thought she just, I thought she, she took the bait when she was interviewed by Mark Rowe, I believe it was on TSN. And he asked her about Igis Fiontek. And of course he had to, but she took the bait and she went for it and indulged him on the question, which I was kind of surprised. And she even took it a little bit further in terms of, yeah, looking forward to playing Iga. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like tennis players, athletes never say that. They always say yeah. one game, one match at a time. And mm -hmm. so to me, that really did reveal that she kind of took her eye off what was right in front of her and maybe didn't give it um, quite enough credence um, and credibility as as perhaps she should have. Yeah, and look, by the time she 
realized I really have to regroup and win this match. I mean, she stormed back in that second set against Buxa from down 5-1. She had a match point at one point in the tiebreak in the second set. Didn't get it. And and suddenly she loses this match 2-6-7-6-6-4. I will say that uh got word from Stephen Bouton of the Slice, actually, that Bianca is take has taken a wild card, actually, to play the Thailand Open next week. So that tells me, I'd say a good sign, she's hungry to get back on court. Yeah, keep playing. And look, she's got a new coach. She's got a new agent, new members to the team. It's mm-hmm. going to take some some time, perhaps, for all that to click. Different strategies, different approach, different voice in her ear. Uh, again, not concerned about Bianca, who's got all the opportunity in the world these first uh, two, three months on tour to just accumulate points that she didn't get in 2022. Yeah, exactly. Um, just a few more days before our first slam has wrapped up. Thanks to Renee Stubbs for joining us on this episode. Guys, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>